Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life. This is episode 286, part two. We've been discussing Malebranche's dialogues on metaphysics and religion. We've finally gotten to occasionalism, his causal theory by which God is really the cause of everything, technically speaking, even though this actually doesn't affect the way that we're going to consider the patterns of causes and effects in science whatsoever. It helps to explain things like how there seems to be mind-body causality, even though those are, according to this Cartesian framework, that he's inheriting totally different substances. So that is one of the things that it solves, but it reaches farther than that, that his notion of substance is such that substances are purely passive. A substance could never get itself moving. It needs something else to move it. So that that other thing is going to be God. God is the thing that not only gives the initial push, but he's giving every push throughout all of the causal web. So where in the text do we want to get going? Maybe you should just work through seven because that's the occasionalism. And if we want to come back to the other stuff, do that later. Yep. We can bring up stuff from earlier as needed. That makes sense to me. We haven't even mentioned that he introduces a third character, but it's not really <laughs> necessary. Who cares? It is. It is with a fucking stupid name, too. Theotimus? I went back to six to see what is it that I missed? His dramatic entrance, you know, and what the heck is he doing there? And it's just completely superfluous. It's like he got tired of writing Aristides all the time. We've been talking about Aristides' evolution from mere prankster, jokester to a serious philosopher. And so there's more in these more recent dialogues, even before the third character comes in, of Aristides saying positive things, but he's still mostly there to be instructed by Theodore. And at some point, Theodore's You've come along far enough that what if I bring in my other philosopher friend, Theotimus, who's just really there to be able to play devil's advocate occasionally and ask Theodore questions, which Aristides could do just as well. But I guess Aristides, you know, we're all already dramatically ensnared in Aristides's advancement as a to being a wise person. So for him to sort of slide back and be devil's advocate in those situations He's not quite smart enough to do that. He's not quite far enough along to do that in the way Theotides was, but he can't play the pure naive anymore either. I was gripped by Aristides' evolution myself, so I was relieved that they brought Theotimus in in order to carry that burden so that I can continue to be attentive to Aristides' development as a philosopher. <laughs> so we began the seventh dialogue with, with Aristides saying that there seems to be nothing more closely united than the soul to its own body. And you can't, if something touches me, I'm affected. How am I even related to things in the world except through my body? 
And it's one of the T characters. I don't know because I only wrote T in my notes. Who just says no. <laughs> it's Theodore. He's still being the, <laughs> the, the bossy man. You could have said Theo and it still wouldn't have solved your problem. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> he comes out and says it straightforwardly. Our minds are not united to our bodies because they can only be united with what can act on it. So it's only God that unites us to our bodies and by way of our bodies to external bodies. So then what Aristides does at least four times on my count is he says, well, if you're going to use God to ground all of this, why can't you just use God to ground interactionism? Why can't you say that through Glusab, through the general laws of the union of the soul and the body, that God establishes those laws in such a way that the soul interacts in certain ways with the body. And that's where we get in section two, we start to get ruminations on matter. We begin in section two with the idea that matter can actually affect the mind because it can't do anything. It can't move anything. It can't move itself. It can't cause something else to move. As extension, it can only passively receive shapes and motions and its properties are only relations of distance. And that's the beginning of two. I had a question in mind, and I'm thinking that it's not as applicable right now, but I'm going to ask it anyway. <laughs> How much of this is Malabranch needing to have things that are moving be actively kept moving because they need to have some kind of motive force to be moving all the time? Well, they need motive force even to be existing in a particular place. So the moving itself and the need for there being some cause to make something move is just a particular instance of anything is existing at all in any particular location. Yeah, because I think Malebranche knows, even though he doesn't say it explicitly, he knows about Galilean relativity and Huygens and all that stuff. He knows that there is no such thing as absolute motion, rectilinear motion, right? Something can be at rest in relation to one frame of reference, but moving in relation to another. Like moving isn't some absolute property of anybody. I'm stationary on my chair, but I'm going 55,000 miles an hour around the sun, but I'm something else in relation to something else. To say something is moving or isn't moving doesn't even make any sense. Let's just stop for a second. Just because motion is relative doesn't mean that the notion of motion doesn't make any sense. No, I'm not saying motion doesn't make any sense. Okay. But, you know, it's different, of course, with curvilinear motion. So acceleration is different. But talk about inertial motion. Yes. Inertial motion in a straight line. I'm just saying that it doesn't make sense to say that that's an absolute property of a body. It is or it isn't moving. It's just not true. See, but he just, he says directly that. On page 228 here, this is in section six, I grant you that when God creates a body, he must at first place it in motion or at rest. But once the instance of creation has passed, this is no longer so. Okay, so that this is what he's been setting up. He probably had said this before, that it is just the definition of existing, that it either has to be in motion or at rest. That sounds pretty absolute to me. That doesn't sound like he knows this uh, Huygens principle at all. Christian Huygens. I think he wants to make it uncomplicated. I think there's other Malebranche. He goes into pretty detailed talk about all of this stuff. And Descartes does too. I think there's evidence that he knows about all that because he gets into the whole debate on conservation of momentum. And these guys are very into the weeds on all the physics stuff. So leaving that aside, you know, so I think he just doesn't want to talk about 
relative frames of reference. He just wants to leave that aside and say, motion or rest, you can insert relative to a frame of reference if you want. Wes brought up, and he called it inertial motion. That was the thing that I see missing in Malabranch is that idea that things in their motion, whatever it is, stay that way unless something acts on them, that their inertia is a property of themselves, as opposed to the idea that in order for them to be moving, whether they're regardless of frames of reference, that movingness has to be maintained. You're right. So if we grant that motion is relative, then we don't necessarily need God to be the first mover as in Aristotle's cosmological argument. We, even though that's the way it's stated here, like, look to your intuition about substance. Is it the kind of thing that can move itself? No. So we need something to push it. So the idea is that a body has to be created and conserved. And if it's a body is created and conserved, it has to be done so logically in a certain place. So we have to put that body on a spatiotemporal coordinate in relation to all the other bodies that there are. If there weren't any other bodies, we wouldn't have that problem. So that has to happen. That's really all he's saying. And, and that has to happen at every single time slice. So if that coordinate changes, then God underwrote that at time T1 at place one, and then he did it again at place two. So what am I going to say about what caused the change in location relative to something else? I'm going to have to attribute that to God as well. So that answers the question, which is that Mala Branch doesn't have any notion of inertia. Because the way you just described it is that all motion is basically stop-action photography of God. That it's the moment-to-moment replacement of objects in space. Not that they have a motion that is a property of them. Well, inertia is just the answer he's trying to avoid, right? He doesn't want it to be a property of the objects. Inertia is just a different theoretical construct trying to solve the same problem. But, well, not the exact same problem, but you know what I mean. I mean, do you feel like that he's convinced you that if you admit that the Aristotelian first mover thing is legitimate, then you also have to admit that actually it can't just be deism? I feel like his logic, as far as that step goes, makes sense. And that makes it a pretty powerful argument because there's a lot of people that would admit the basic cosmological deist thing, but would not see the need to have God in there supporting and sustaining every second. But given the notion of God, so I think this is not something in physics, you know, we need a preserver in physics because I think you could just call it inertia or something. Maybe he thinks that that is one of those those words that, you know, like the somnolistic force or whatever, that doesn't actually, like inertia is just picking out a pattern. It doesn't actually explain anything. Is that why he thinks that God is a better explanation than inertia for that phenomenon? Well, he doesn't say anything about inertia that I found. No. I, yeah. I'm just trying to clarify the occasionalism and understand the constant activity of God. So to me, the prime mover or the, sort of the clockwork God that sets the universe in in motion according to a set of laws, that's full of inertial characteristics, okay? Whereas what I'm hearing in Malabranch is it doesn't have inertial characteristics at all. It's God actively doing things all the time. Those are two really different things. But he's doing things according to laws that you could explain using the concept of inertia to characterize. Yeah. Malabranch would have no objection to any concept of theoretical 
physics. That doesn't affect his ontology ultimately. Maybe that points to it's not a matter of inertia is a bad explanation. It's just not enough of an explanation, right? It doesn't explain the basic metaphysical thing. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminelife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.